1566 now, or five years since the Virginia Indian Paki Caneo left home with the Spanish. He met King Philip in Madrid, nearly died in Mexico City, and was baptized Don Luis de Velasco. Now he's a Christian, and the Dominicans have organized a mission back to Virginia that Don Luis will guide. The ship carries 15 soldiers and a few friars. The idea is to settle Virginia, spread the gospel, and maybe find a path to the Pacific. On August 2nd, they sail north from Havana. Twelve days later, they're as far north as Chincoteague Bay, Maryland, but the ship encounters a fierce storm and blows out to sea. Ten days after that, they still haven't found the Chesapeake. Instead, they're off the coast of North Carolina, so they sail north again, but on September 6th, they're back in Chincoteague Bay. At this point, they resign themselves to failure. Instead of continuing to look for Virginia, they sail east for Spain. Take a second and imagine this moment from Don Luis's point of view. After five years of travel and illness, he's so close to returning home, and yet now he must go all the way back to Spain. It's around this time that Don Luis's Indian companion, the one who left Virginia with him, disappears from the records. It's a bit dramatic, but I've always imagined him dying from heartbreak as that ship turns east, as he watches the eastern shore slowly disappear behind the horizon. Don Luis, we can guess, is made of sterner stuff. I'm Brendan Wolf, Managing Editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we continue the story of Paki Caneo, a Virginia Indian transformed into a Spanish Christian named Don Luis de Velasco. In 1527, a Spaniard named Pamfilo de Narvaez landed near present-day Tampa Bay and marched his men north. But the expedition soon petered out. Eleven years later, Hernando de Soto followed Narvaez's route north and west, eventually making it all the way to the Mississippi River. Along the way, though, de Soto's men encountered some hostile Indians. There was a battle near a town, and then something remarkable happened. As a Spanish account later put it, one of the conquistadors spied 10 or 11 Indians coming into a field, and one of those Indians was a Christian, except that he was naked and scorched with the sun and had his arms raised after the manner of the Indians and in all other respects looked and acted just like them. The Christian was Juan Ortiz. He had been on the expedition led by Narvaez 11 years earlier. After being captured by Indians, over time he became one, or at least that was the impression of the Spaniards. Hearing him cry his name, they had trouble even understanding what he was saying. They misheard Ortiz for oro, the Spanish word for gold. They heard what they wanted to hear, in other words, and they saw what they wanted to see. Not a man, but an Indian, a tool by which they might attain wealth and glory. When the Spaniards realized Juan Ortiz was one of their own, they used him as an interpreter. He moved from one world to another, from one concentric circle to another, as best he could. Then a few years later, he died. Did he ever again feel fully Spanish or fully Indian? Juan Ortiz and Don Luis. Their names rhyme in more ways than one. Don Luis lands back in Spain in the fall of 1566, and that's when the recriminations begin. The ship's ensign blames Don Luis for failing to recognize the Chesapeake. The ship's pilot blames the weather. 
Those close to the governor of Florida, a strong man named Pedro Menendez de Aviles, blame the Dominicans. The religious politics of exploration are intense. Various orders, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Augustinians, are always vying for access, falling in and out of favor. And at the moment, Menendez doesn't much care for the Dominicans. This accident of fate may be what saves Don Luis's life. The ensign doesn't trust the Indian, but he's overruled. Some historians, though, have wondered. Perhaps Don Luis did refuse to find the Chesapeake. Perhaps he refused for the same reason he'd pretended to fall ill years before in Mexico City. He'd wanted to avoid bringing Spanish soldiers into Virginia. And that must have been a crushing sacrifice, being so close to home and yet choosing not to return, even after five years away. There's no way of knowing whether this is true. Who's to say Don Luis was even able to navigate these waters? The point, though, is this. We don't know where Don Luis stands. Is he Don Luis or Paquicaneo? Spanish or Indian? Is he a Christian or just pretending? How can we know? How can the Spanish know? For that matter, how can he know? Don Luis next travels to Seville. There he takes up residence in a Jesuit monastery. The Society of Jesus was new then, maybe 25 years old, and the group had only been in Seville for a little more than a decade. Their founder, Ignatius of Loyola, was a Spaniard from the Basque country. Early in his life, he'd read adventure books, joined the army, and lived exactly the kind of life caricatured in Don Quixote. Affairs, gambling, children out of wedlock. Then, at the siege of Pamplona in 1521, Ignatius was badly wounded. His leg broken, he was an invalid and asked for books of chivalry to pass the time. By mistake, though, his caretaker brought him Vita Christi, a life of Christ. The text left him transformed. The future saint joined a monastery, and for a year he lived in a cave. There he penned a guide to the religious life he called spiritual exercises. Now, four decades later, Don Luis has joined the Jesuits and probably engages with Ignatius' spiritual exercises. The priests used the program as a day-to-day guide to meditation a guide to spiritual transformation. In the fifth exercise of week one, for example, Don Luis is asked to imagine hell, to see the fire with his eyes, to hear the wailings, groans, and cries, to smell the smoke and the brimstone, to taste the tears, and finally, to touch the fires. It's impossible to know what Don Luis thinks about the burning of souls. In Virginia, his obligations were to a series of spirits, They demanded correct behavior and certain kinds of rituals. Withhold the proper respect and the spirits might ruin your hunt, or they might conspire to see you defeated in battle. To mitigate that possibility, warriors like Don Luis wore their hair long on one side and shorn on the other, imitating the look of Oki, the powerful spirit who oversaw the day-to-day affairs of the world. In Seville, Don Luis's hair has probably been cut short all around. Does that mean, like St. Ignatius or the conquistador Juan Ortiz, that he has been transformed? Does that mean he's thinking about the inner world of his soul instead of the outer world of spirits? Here we are at the end of Act Two, and we know very little about Don Luis the person. He's been all over the world, so we can guess he's strong, adaptable, and smart. We have no idea what he thinks about heaven and hell, but nine years after he left, 
As Don Luis prepares to return to Virginia, those burning fires of hell from the spiritual exercises, those wailings, the groans, and the cries, they all add up to an eerie bit of foreshadowing. To learn more about Paki Caneo, the age of exploration, and the surprising connection between Juan Ortiz and Pocahontas, go to encyclopediavirginia.org. <laughs>